This is Mike. For the last two to three years, uh, we, um, we've been working together on our sermons. So uh, we plan out our sermon series together, and then we work on them. He's in uh, outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and he and Erica, his amazing wife, uh, have come out um, to help just with the, you know, the, the memorial service for my dad and then um, to uh, fill in for me today. Uh, Mike is, I can't speak highly enough of him uh, as a man of God and, and as a friend. Um, he's a, he's a hero to me and, uh, I'm, I'm just glad that you get to meet him too. Thanks, Tom. Well, it's a privilege to be with you, Coast Bible Church and greetings from Mercy Road Church, which really feels like a sister church to your congregation. Tom's right. It's almost three years though that we've been writing sermons together. We plan a year in advance the series and then we get together over Zoom on a weekly basis and we talk Tom is funny. He doesn't like it when I call him when I'm in my vehicle. He doesn't like the Bluetooth noise on the phone. It's one of his pet peeves. And so I had this urge to call Tom uh, a while back, and and I thought, well, I'm not preaching this Sunday. My associate pastor's preaching, so I don't have any shop to talk. Uh, And I'm in my car, and you don't call Tom on the Bluetooth in the car unless you unless you really want to bring out the cranky part of Tom, the cantankerous uh, Dave Bennett part of, part of Tom. And, and yet, nevertheless, it felt like an impression I had to call him. I called him and he said, how did you know my, my dad just passed away? Sometimes the Spirit will do that with friends. It is a privilege to be your friend, Tom. I've known Tom for 16 years. We went to seminary together. My dad uh, grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and his dad would take him to the racetracks. Greyhounds would race around. Probably not a great parenting tip, uh, but that's how he grew up. And back then, there was a mechanical uh, metal rabbit, looked like a rabbit, that would go around the track, and the dogs would chase it, and you'd bet on it. And my grandpa Frank, who I never met, said, Larry, to my dad, Life is all about finding a rabbit. They'll run faster because the rabbit is there to chase. And so he he said, if if you struggle in a subject in school or something, find somebody who runs faster than you, who's a little smarter than you, and just cozy up to them and, and, and you'll figure it out. When I had to learn Greek and Hebrew, I was not excited. You know, language, that detail work just wasn't my favorite. But then I saw Tom, because Tom seemed to know more about that language than the professors did from an early age. So I said, hey, Tom, come over to my apartment, and uh, I'll provide the food, and you can uh, be my tutor. And we really did uh, provide some tutoring for each other in different areas. I kind of helped Tom learn how to be an adult, take out the trash, and this is called washing the dishes. And, 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 and Tom helped me parse Greek and learn Hebrew, and I, I, I think I got a B-plus in both. So thank you, Tom. Um, you really do have a good pastor. A, a recent Barna study said that there is a, a prediction that 25% of all pastors will exit the ministry when all this settles. The COVID, post-COVID, racial reckoning, culture wars, all, all of this, this intense cultural moment. They'll just either take an re- early retirement or they'll just say there are easier ways to make a living. In light of that, I just want to encourage you, I know you know this, that you have a great pastor, but I want to encourage you to continue to pray for him and Aaron and the kids to to be a regular source of life-giving encouragement. Because it's not easy. There is a spiritual enemy who would like to take Tom out. Tom, 
I'm proud to be your friend, and thank you for letting me preach here today. Uh, Thank you for letting me be a part of that honoring service for your father. We are in a sermon series on 1 John. We're going to pause in that today because in in light of, of Dave's passing, do you know that you are made to last forever? Your body will go in the ground, but, but you will rise again. Consider that living in light of eternity, it changes just about everything in our life. Now, at the onset, I want to just instill a little humility in all of us, because most of us, maybe all of us, are self-delusional. There's a, a recent uh, dating service, a dating site. More and more couples are getting, getting connected through dating websites. And, and I, I read an article about this. The dating service said that 50% of one of the genders answered a specific question on the inventory in a peculiar way. The question in this dating service inventory said, do you consider yourself a genius? 50% of one of the genders. Now think about that statistically. It's like 1% to 2% of the population has an IQ of a 140 to 180. That's around genius range. So that's a very mathematically small amount of people. But 50% of, yes, you guessed it, men said... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a genius, yeah. 30% of women said yes. Why do I share that? We can be self-delusional. And one of the ways that I think our culture is prone to be self-delusional has less to do with us overestimating our intellect and more to do with us underestimating eternity. We live for the moment. We live for the next vacation. We live for the next promotion. We live for graduation day from high school or college awaits us. We just don't think about that. And I think you guys are worse than than us up in Minnesota. I've lived in both. You are more prone to deny death. In part, you can't blame yourself. You guys have in and out. We don't have in and out. So, I mean, if you're going to create a perfect perfect Eden-like world here and kind of distract yourself and say, you know, there's probably not an eternity. It's just this life. I mean, you have a double-double just to sink your teeth into whenever you want. You have better weather than us. Poor Tom visited, and I took him ice fishing. It was 17 below zero when he came. I mean, that's extreme even for where where we live. Because we have these harsh winters and hot summers, maybe we're just more able to grasp that this is not all there is. God has also set eternity in the human heart, Solomon writes. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. If you take notes in your note sheets, human beings were instinctively hardwired to yearn for love, joy, and adventure that will what? That will last. That will last. The memorial service had, had a, a number of touching tributes in Quote, when Soren was born in 2018, Tom and Aaron gave him the middle name David to honor the best dad ever and to make sure that the legacy of Dave and the Bennetts would live on. Why? Why would they do that? Why do we do that? Why do we want our legacy to live on? Why do we feel like even a a, a life that's long and well-lived is just not long enough? Do you have that sense deep down? C.S. Lewis writes about just how really the conclusion is, is something like we were made for another world. He said, if we discover a desire within us that nothing in this world can satisfy, we should begin to wonder if perhaps we were created for another world. Another way to think about that is if the time span that you've experienced now 
hasn't quite scratched the itch, maybe you were made for an eternal time span. Think about like the best vacation you've ever had, the best romantic experience, the most satisfying achievement you've ever experienced at work or in a sport. How long last long enough? It didn't last long enough. We, we human beings have been fed a cultural lie that this is all there is. But scripture says deep, deep down, hardwired into your programming, you know, you know that you were made to last forever. You know that no matter how ideal you can make your circumstances, how much control you can exert over your circumstances here and now, there's a longing for something greater, something more. And funerals kind of bring this out. I, I'm kind of a unique person because it's not hard for me to think in terms of eternity because I've been exposed to a lot of death. I was born premature by two months. I was going to die. And uh, my dad, a lapsed Catholic, my mom, a lapsed Baptist, had me baptized in the incubator, and, and I made it. I have a scar right here. I didn't have a lung for a while. They, they kind of had to grow that in the, the NICU. And, and so I was told as a kid, you know, it's incredible that you're alive, which is a weird thing to tell a kid, but that's good. You have had some experiences. Many of you have had them too, just from an early age. I remember in college, a good friend of mine died of meningitis. He accepted Christ like three weeks before, and then all of a sudden he was just gone. And I remember processing that when Sean died. I became a, a very young army chaplain after seminary, and I did something like over 100 funerals before I turned 30, which is a weird, weird way to grow up as a young minister. And you do over 100 of anything, and, and you start to kind of notice some things. You notice that we live in a death-denying culture, and you notice that what people really long for is not nice, sappy comfort. They long for eternal comfort. They long for the, the truth, the promise, that they instinctively yearn for love, joy, and adventure that will last, and God offers that through Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, I'd like us to, to go to 1 Peter, but, but consider this thought. God lovingly offers us the only living hope, and that is eternity with him. One of my favorite scriptures for a funeral comes from 1 Peter. If you read through the gospel accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Peter has a way that he wants things to work out. And he's constantly kind of fighting Jesus, saying, like, no, this is how it has to look. Like, if you're the Messiah, you have to overthrow Rome, and it has to look a certain way, and I want a certain promotion, and, and this is the script that I have for you, Jesus, and for my life, and, and this is the Eden I want to build here. And Jesus is always saying, I mean, sometimes drastically, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. But Peter has this radical shift after the resurrection. He starts to see in light of eternity. He starts to have eternal perspective. He starts to understand that this is the preschool of life. He's going to be 70,000 years old someday and counting and new heavens and a new earth. And Peter changes his attitude and he writes this letter and he opens it up with this incredible statement. I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. 
born again, your translation might say, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for who? It's personal. For you. For me. For anybody. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, this inheritance, this new birth into a living hope, this eye-opening experience into eternal perspective. In this you greatly rejoice, although now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, though you Though now you do not see him, I love this line, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's one of my favorite parts of scripture. I love that phrase, a living hope. And I find it super ironic that there's flowers at funerals, don't you? I mean, who thought of that? Somebody died, and so I'm going to cut down living things. Hey, your loved one died. Here's some dead stuff that's going to get progressively uglier in the next six days. I hope that brings you incredible solace. It's a, it's a strange tradition. I have allergies, so it's insult on injury. But think about it for a minute. Just look at your life mentally for a minute and, and just categorize, if you indulge me, all the things you put your hope in. You know, you know what you put your hope in when you're, you're hitting snooze for the second time and you're like, what will get me out of bed? Like, ah, uh, that breakfast sandwich? Oh man, when I microwave it, the middle's always kind of cold. That's not a hope worth getting out of bed, you know? How about, you know, I have little kids, you know? I've got two boys and a little girl, 10, 8, 5. I put my hope in them. And in many ways, that's right to do. They are alive. They're living hope. They're made in the image of the living God. But what about other stuff? I mean, we rented a car and we got upgraded and that was nice. And it, it's a, a bug convertible, a VW convertible. And that's been kind of fun. And, and we said to each other, wouldn't that be kind of fun to have? Very impractical for our climate. But, but I, I thought as soon as the... Because cars are dying hopes. Even if you're a car guy or a car gal, there's a reason those little Christmas trees come in new car scent. Because new car scent has a way of dying out, fading out. Are you today putting your hope in something that is alive or that is dying? Part of my story, Tom has mentioned that uh, I'm a combat veteran. And um, in 2009, I was in Basra, Iraq, and uh, was teaching Financial Peace University group of people like this in a very secure compound, relatively safe part of the base. and We called it Thunder Thursdays. The rocket attacks would come in, but they didn't have great aim, so we didn't worry about it. You know, that particular night, though, they did. And over the radio, they called for the chaplain, even though the all-clear wasn't, wasn't called. And so me and a, another lieutenant 
who, you know, chaplains don't carry weapons, so you kind of have to go with somebody who, who has a weapon. He said, I'll take you, chaplain. Should we go? Dead. No. On contact. Two wounded. And so we drove through this chaos, and we, we finally got to this little tent in this obscure part of the base, and I had the odd ministry privilege to, to kneel beside a young man who, who was dying of his wounds, to whisper in his ear, this is not the end. What would you say? You know, I was kind of trained for it. Fort Sam Houston, Texas, they desensitize you at a level one trauma center so you're not distracted by the gore and, the, and, the, and you, you take your knee at the, at the head of the, the dying victim and you calm them as the medics try to do what they can. And in this case, I was working the breathing ball for internal perspective you know, the words just kind of come out what's really in there. The 23rd Psalm came out for me. I love that you do a wanna here. If you're ever really debating between, you know, gosh, do we do traveling soccer for the kids or a wanna? I'm glad my parents chose a wanna because the 23rd Psalm came out. Scripture flowed out of pain, and I just said, this is not the end. Jesus loves you. We're so proud of you. This is not the end. Trust him. They called the time of death. I prayed with the doctors and I pivoted to another young man for another half an hour. He passed away as well. And that was a a difficult deployment. Uh, A major on our tour took his own life and I ended up finding his his body, and, you know, those are things I carry with me. Those are things that require an intimate type of friendship, and I'm glad your pastor has pastored me through kind of the the weight of carrying some of those burdens and feeling normal. But, But God says that we will go through trials. We just read that. And Peter's writing to people who went through more difficult trials than I've ever seen or you've ever seen, most likely. And he said, don't, don't freak out when you go through those things. When people die, when rockets come, don't lose heart. Those various trials, they're massaging, developing a genuineness of your faith. And you can kind of see Peter just preaching this as he writes. He's just, it's kind of like gold. It, it needs fire to be refined for the dross to come out. You're like gold. But you're more precious than that because you're an eternal being made in the image of an eternal God and you know it even if you're an atheist, you know it. You certainly know it in those moments where you hold someone's hand and then the hand stops squeezing yours and they're gone and yet you just know there's more to the story than they're gone. The only living hope there is, and that is eternity with him. Thirdly, and and lastly, this will be a little more application-heavy. People who live in light of eternity, they're going to value certain things. Because that's a practical question. Okay, you know, the, the preacher guy's talking about living in light of eternity. I get it. I'm a Christian. I have a faith background. You know, when you die, you go to heaven if you accept the forgiving love of Jesus. And, yep, check the box, you know. No, no. You can believe something, and then you can believe something. 
belief in Scripture, both in Hebrew and Greek, because I had this really great tutor who taught me this stuff, it's more to do with acting on the belief than just consenting verbally to something. I mean, it's mysterious because God is so powerful in his grace that all you have to say is like, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Would you just forgive me? And, and you're in, you're, you're part of the family. It's automated. It's amazing. But if you really want to know if you're living in light of the living hope that is eternity, you're going to value certain things. What are you going to value? Well, for starters, and one four talks about this inheritance. My wife, uh, her father's pretty wealthy. He lives on a mansion uh, right on the, the ocean in, in Florida. It's kind of fun to go to his house. I get lost sometimes. Um, and so, you know, more, more than likely, you know, we'll have a monetary inheritance at some point. We were talking about that. And, you know, even if you're not super money motivated, that's cool, right? Peter's saying, you know how everyone kind of instinctively is drawn to monetary inheritance and we want security and we like things? Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And he's not completely clear on what that is, but, but it's obvious at least that he's thinking the glory that will bring the Father— and those we bring on the journey, those who we have served alongside and loved well and sacrificed for, do you have stuff or does your stuff have you? That's a really kind of tough question. You know, we, we talk about giving all the time at tithe and go beyond that and all that, but I remember just being slayed once by a sermon I heard on sacrificial giving, the preacher said something like, hey, it's very possible for you to be tithing or giving faithfully your, your resources and meeting the needs of the poor and being very generous indeed. But don't confuse that with sacrificial giving if you're not giving sacrificially. And he, he went on, he said, let me explain this really complicated concept. If it doesn't cut into the restaurants you eat at, the trips you take, the, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the house you live in, not at all. Doesn't pinch a little bit any of those categories, you may be generous. You may be faithfully supporting ministry and alleviating some suffering in the world, but it's not sacrificed by the definition because it's not cutting into really what you want. Is there something in your closet, in your garage, in your home, in your bank account that it makes you kind of sweaty and nervous to, to do the thought experiment about someone else borrowing that? If there is, with, with humility, because you can talk about this kind of stuff when you don't have to come back the next Sunday. <laughs> maybe you don't own that. Maybe it owns you. And maybe you're not realizing that the only living hope in the universe is eternity with God and people who are, are made in the living God's image. People matter infinitely more than possessions. It's just the case. And the more you live in light of eternity, the more I do, and I don't do this perfectly, the more that will just spill out into our behaviors. We'll be so much more interested in people than stuff. People who live in light of eternity won't just value people over possessions, but they will value lasting joy over temporary trials. I have a, a little uh, sermon illustration here. It's, uh, I like to call it the eternity rope. I, I want you to think of this, Tom, if you can be my assistant there, as a timeline. Uh, you know what a timeline is, you know? At the beginning, you start. 
At the end, you end. But this thought experiment is a little different. Picture uh, the rope that Tom is laboriously unfolding there. Going out the door, what direction is that? Anybody? East, East. yeah. So going east, over New York, over the ocean, just keeps going. Up into the outer atmosphere, into outer space, it just keeps going. I mean, how many galaxies have we discovered, let alone the ones we, we don't? I mean, we live in a big creation here. Just picture this timeline going on forever. I know it hurts your brain. Forever does kind of break your brain, but, but go there. Can you pull it tight? The illustration only works if it's tight. You didn't hear me, but you guys, can, you guys can imagine. And now I want you to get personal. Imagine this is where you begin, whatever year you were born in, 1967, 1982, 1994, whatever. And this is the timeline of your whole life. But this red part you see is your life on earth. This is your life on earth. This was preschool. This was that really awkward junior high period, you know, where your hands and your feet and your head have grown to adult size, but everything else hasn't caught up yet. The pimples, all that. High school found it. Oh, maybe this is where you went through a real loss. Some of you carry the pain of a divorce. It feels like an amputation. Gosh, that was painful. Some of you, you just had a dream and you wanted to get into that school. You wanted this job and it, was, it just didn't work out how you wanted to. Some of you were walking along life and, and this little timeline of your life was dramatically altered because someone you loved very, very much, their timeline ended. And if you're honest, you're still wondering, how could God allow that to happen? Is he still good? Because she was only seven when cancer took her. Because Carlos was only... 24, when that rocket killed him. And Drebnik was only 18. You, you understand the point? The rope is a bit longer than the red part of the rope. Now I know science says maybe time isn't fully linear, linear maybe it's more like a spiral, and, and I think the best theologians say God stands outside of time just because we experience one moment after the other, that doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly how it will be in eternity in heaven. But for teaching purposes, this is what has helped me walk through the trials in my life. I can't imagine what the world is like when my father is no longer in it. But now Tom doesn't have to imagine it. That, that's your reality. And wouldn't it have been ideal if Dave Bennett's red part of his timeline just went a few more inches so that he could see Soren graduate high school, so he could throw the ball, so he could see any number of life events, so he could sit right there during worship practice and say, good job, or get it together, depending on the set, right? (laughs) Nevertheless, God in his sovereignty decided that Dave's would end here. And here's the really, we're pretty sure about that. You don't know where the red line ends for you. It could be today. And when you do hundreds of funerals, you start to have like this holy curiosity about it. Not a, not a fear, just a, huh. See, Americans, we have a hard time even getting life insurance. We just, we're death deniers. It's just like, I'll think about that after the next double-double. I'll think about that after the next vacation. Oh, look, 
a convertible, a VW convertible. That would be cool. How would your life look different, Christian or non-Christian? I'm sure we have both. If you lived in light of the white part of the rope, I do a military through the church and different groups, and we fly in active duty couples and veterans, and they're, you know, they're really not doing well in some cases, you know, four deployments will do that, whatever. And I, I end with this at the vow renewals. It's kind of, it's kind of a cheap trick because basically I'm saying, you know, you're, as bad as your marriage is, and you, you probably did marry just a piece of work, right? But who can't just kind of commit to a few more inches on the red to be faithful in the marriage, knowing that you got all this white, you know, where every desire will be satiated and it's going to be good. Every sorrow will be wiped away. And so, you know, we have a pretty good track record. They all re-up. They do a vow renewal. And, and I joke that that's manipulative, but sometimes the truth feels manipulative, but it's not. It's the truth. If we discover a desire within us that nothing in this world can satisfy, we should begin to wonder if perhaps we were created for another world. God has set eternity in your human heart, and you know it. Coast people who live in light of eternity, they're going to value people over possessions. They're going to value lasting joy over these temporary trials. They'll put it, perish, worship, hold fast to the invisible God over visible things. First Peter says, you know, you, you can't see him now, but you love him anyways. Because you sense him. Are you getting distracted in this season of your life with all the trials that you can see, all the visible things, all the problems? Maybe. God's word is inviting you to live in light of eternity and to lean into the visible image of the invisible God. That's what the word says Jesus is. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He loves you. He knows your story. He knows every trial you've gone through because he's walked alongside you. Telling the story of Winston Churchill who planned his own funeral. He interrupted Taps with a bugler. He had stationed in advance to play revelry. Taps is depressing. It's the end of the day. Revelry is, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. Here's my challenge, Coast, because sermons don't mean much if we don't do something with them. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up and you're wondering, what will get me out of bed? What dying hope? What flower? What breakfast sandwich? What kid calling to wake up? What animal? I have an Australian shepherd that just mauls me every day when I wake up. Instead of all that, hum softly revelry. What do you have to lose? And as you do, remind your heart that there is a lot more white on the rope than red. That you will be in the presence of the living God, experiencing the living hope for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, I pray for Coast Bible Church. I ask that this beyond. I pray for Pastor Tom. I know his heart's heavy. I also know his father, David, and his heavenly father are both proud of him. And that the good work that you have called him to, you're going to help him accomplish and finish that good work. I pray for every person in this church. I ask that you would encourage each one of us in the way that we need to be and that you would truly help us to live 
in light of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.